Welcome to tape number three of the series, What We Catholics Believe. This tape is going to be about our first parents, the first pair of human beings who ever lived, and from whom we are all descended, which makes us part of one great family. Now the Catholic Church teaches that these people were Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, written about in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Fortunately, scientists now agree that we all do come from one woman, although they call her Lucy. But this fits in with the consistent and universal teaching of the Church from the beginning, and, of course, the teaching of Judaism. And our teaching is based not on science, but on the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it was reaffirmed most recently by Pope Pius XII in his encyclical Humani Generis in 1950, where he explained that all Catholics necessarily believe that we are all descended from Adam and Eve. The Pope also mentioned evolution. And of course, in 1950, he was writing before the discovery of DNA and three years before the Piltdown Man was unmasked as a fraud. And he allowed that Catholics were free to believe that Adam and Eve might have evolved from lower animals if they felt the arguments in favour of this were strong enough. But he emphasised that if evolution is taught in Catholic schools, it must never be as an established fact, which it isn't, only as a mere theory, or rather succession of theories, which is all it is. Darwin's original theory was discredited long ago and so have the others succeeding it, mainly because they depended on the appearance of fossils for species that were in between, the fossils that had already been discovered and the present existing animals. If the theories were correct, there should be a tremendous number of intermediary species and their fossils, or at least one of them, at least, should have been discovered. Even Darwin commented on this before he died. Why haven't we found any fossils of intermediary species? Well, we still haven't. This is certainly a problem to be evolutionists. And in 19, 1980, at a conference in Chicago... They attempted to solve it by deciding that evolution must have proceeded by jumps, not by intermediary stages. That means, for instance, that the flying reptile, the pterodactyl, which they consider to be the ancestor of the birds, didn't produce animals that were a little bit more like birds and gradually grow into birds, because we haven't got fossils for that. But this scaly flying reptile produced a little feathery chick suddenly from nowhere 
which survived and which produced more chicks. And so evolution changed by jumps like that. We have our first parents, and that we do all believe, with immortal spiritual souls, created by God, and endowed by him with the sanctifying grace or supernatural life necessary for them to be able to live with him in his home in heaven. Adam and Eve were not created with the grace. It was given to them afterwards. Because the grace is a share of God's life. To create beings actually with it would almost be like creating other gods. But it's a present, a gift from God, which was given to them. Given to them so that they could live in God's home in heaven when their time on earth was finished. But heaven was not forced on them. They had to be tested, just as the angels before them were tested. Just as we are tested many times and will be tested many more times. Heaven is not forced on anyone. It is because we have freely chosen to obey God, to follow his teaching, to please him. That we want to get to heaven, that we find ourselves there in the end. So God spoke to Adam, not about an apple, as people who haven't read the book of Genesis tend to say. There is no mention there of the word apple. I think that misconception has come about because artists who wanted to to depict the fall, and they knew the story in the book of Genesis is about a tree, and the fruit of the tree, the only way they could picture it was by drawing something like an apple. And that, of course, led to the story being continued and passed on. What God spoke to Adam about when he put him in the paradise to live was about the tree of the fruit, the fruit of the tree, sorry, of the knowledge of good and evil. That's how it's described. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, though Adam was free to pick all the fruit of all the trees and to move among the animals and to do almost as he pleased, He was told not to touch the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's an interesting name. The tree was called the knowledge of good and evil. It's a way of saying that only God decides what is right and what is wrong. Not us, his creatures. He reserves that judgment to himself. And of course he still does. Now God spoke to Adam and explained this. And Adam, being a human being, had the intelligence to understand exactly what he meant. And later on when the time came, Adam explained it to Eve, who also understood perfectly. They were not to touch the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was reserved. God. Now, unfortunately, Eve was tempted by the devil. 
At first she resisted. And remember, the devil can't make anybody sin. We have free will. The only person who can make any one of us sin is ourselves. By choosing to exercise that free will and do what we know is wrong. So Eve, quite rightly, resisted at first. And that led the devil to lie. The first lie ever told. Because Adam and Eve had not lied to each other. And God, of course, cannot lie. The devil invented lies. This is why Jesus refers to him as the father of lies. And he told Eve, If you do partake of that fruit, your eyes will be opened, and you will be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now that was very tempting. And Eve didn't realise it was a lie. She'd never come across a lie before. In a way, we're almost, in the, still today, we're in the, tempted in the same way to decide for ourselves what's right and what's wrong and to follow our own inclinations, even if we call it conscience, about strict rules that are made very clear like the obligation of Sunday Mass or the evil of contraception instead of following Christ and his church. It's a temptation we must resist. We don't decide what's right and what's wrong. God does. Unfortunately, Eve didn't continue to resist. She sinned. And when she had partaken of the fruit, she tempted Adam, who also sinned. Now, Adam was at liberty to resist that temptation. He could have said, no, we've been told not to do that. But he didn't. He sinned. She repeated the lie to him. And I suppose he believed it too. So they both sinned. This is a sin of pride and disobedience to God. And of course, once they had committed the sin, they realized they had been tricked. They were not as God's. They were both very sorry. In fact, they were so sorry, they realized their relationship with God had been spoilt, and they hid themselves from him. Which was foolish, you cannot hide from God. God came in front of the bush they were hiding behind, and he called Adam out. Adam is the head of the human race. The fact that he sinned made this such a momentous and serious matter. He called Adam, and Adam didn't dare refuse. But as he came out, he protested. It was the woman you, you gave me, almost as if he's blaming God. And of course it wasn't the woman. She may have tempted him, but it was he himself who decided to sin. And then God called Eve. They were both very sorry, very repentant. And as with all sinners, when we're genuinely repentant, God is very forgiving. 
And so he did give Adam and Eve, and that means the human race, another chance. But at the same time, their sin had consequences, and very serious and important consequences that we still live with today. They had both lost the sanctifying grace or the supernatural life that had been given to them. And that's serious, because that is what makes it possible for us to live in heaven. And because they had lost it, they couldn't pass it on to any children they had. The children would be born without sanctifying grace or supernatural life. And we, who are their descendants, were born without sanctifying grace. It's what's called being born in original sin. It doesn't mean we've done anything wrong. We're not guilty. We haven't committed any sin. And of course, sin is not a positive thing. It's always a lack of something. Lack of love, lack of grace. So although it's called being born in original sin, it might be a bit clearer or more exact to say we're born without sanctifying grace. Human life, but none of God's supernatural life. And that's why very soon after babies are born to Catholic parents, they take them to church to have them baptised, to receive supernatural life, the grace they need, so that they can live in heaven. So that if anything happens to them then, they can exist and be happy in heaven. But Adam and Eve had lost their supernatural life. And we've lost it. A great many other things happened as well. Before they sinned, Adam and Eve enjoyed what's called original justice. They were very good. They had all the human virtues to perfection. I don't mean they were infinite like God. But within human limitations, they were perfect. Perfectly good-tempered, kind, thoughtful. All the nice virtues you can think of. They were just there, without any effort, without any difficulty. Their souls ruled their bodies. That means their reason was in charge of their lives, not their feelings. If they did anything, it was for a very good reason. They never could lose their temper or give way to any passion because their feelings were subdued under their reason. And that is not true of them after the fall and it's not true of their descendants now, sadly. They possessed absolute integrity. Now they lost that at the fall and we've lost it. And that's brought all sorts of problems. And we recognise them because they're all with us today. Death came into the world with sin. Originally, death was not on the programme. And death is a very sad and very hard thing. Death of our loved ones is one of the most difficult things we have to cope with in this life. And our own death. And that will happen to everybody. 
death came into the world with sin. And as well as death, all kinds of illnesses, big and little, getting tired, feeling cross, all the little crosses we have to put up with, and the bigger ones. Having to work. Adam and Eve didn't have to work. Everything was there for them. After they sinned, they had to leave the paradise where everything was provided. And they had to work. Adam had to grow the food. Eve had to work helping. They had to protect themselves from the animals who were no longer their friends. If they wanted to domesticate any animals, they had to tame them. Life was a great deal more difficult than it had been. And sadly, it's like that for us now. All the problems we have in this life date from that fall of our first parents. And one of the things that happened to them, and it's here with us still too, is the tendency to sin. Technically it's called concupiscence. And it means that it's easier sometimes to be bad-tempered than it is to restrain ourselves and to stay good-tempered. It's easier to lie than to tell the truth. It's easier to sin than to keep free from sin. Living a good life means a struggle every day, all the time. can be done with God's help. It is not the easiest thing to do. We go along with our feelings and what's easy. We shan't lead a good life. Because we now have concupiscence. We tend towards sin. I remember uh, G.K. Chesterton said, Original sin is the one doctrine you don't have to prove. Because if you look around you, it's obvious. You can see everybody is damaged by it. We have a damaged nature. I think it's quite a good thing to remember that. To keep account of it. It means we don't expect too much from ourselves. We're careful. We realise that we have to tend with a damaged nature. We have to work on our behaviour, on our prayer life, on our love for our neighbours, which doesn't always come naturally. And also it helps us to deal with other people. People we're working with, living with, people we're married to, or our own sons and daughters and parents. The best will in the world. We've all got a damaged nature. We can't expect or take for granted that everyone's going to behave perfectly all the time. They won't. We can't even expect that we're going to behave perfectly all the time ourselves. It'll need a constant effort. It can be done, as we know from the lives of the saints, but only at an effort. And that's because of concupiscence. We are biased in the direction of sin. And it's a constant struggle against it. But the saddest result of all, worse even than any of these, is that the human race was now estranged from God. 
the wonderful relationship that Adam and Eden had with God was spoiled. We had offended Almighty God. But God in his great mercy and love didn't abandon us. He saw that we needed a redeemer. We needed someone who would put this estrangement right. And he promised to send the redeemer. And the redeemer had to be somebody very special. Had to be God himself. And man. If he was going to put this offence right. Because an offence is more serious the more important the person you offend. I know when I'm telling this to children, I say, the little boy's naughty and he puts his tongue out at his friend. Well, it's not terribly serious, it's not very nice. But if he puts his tongue out at his teacher, he will be in more trouble. He certainly shouldn't do that. And if when they go into um, assembly and a whole school is collected in a hall, he steps out of his line and puts his tongue out at the head teacher, he is going to find himself in more serious trouble. Because that offence is more serious than putting his tongue out at his friend. And if the Queen came to visit the school and he decided to put his tongue out at her, then I think that would be the worst trouble of all. Now what we have done, and what Adam and Eve did, and what we do with our sins, is to offend Almighty God. We couldn't find somebody more important to offend. And that can only be put right by someone as great as God, in fact, by God himself. Someone who shares the divine nature and our human nature. In fact, by our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So this first or original sin led to God becoming man, to restore our friendship with him. And by his suffering, to atone for this sin and for all our sins and make it possible for us and probably Adam and Eve as well to win back the grace necessary for us to enter heaven. Now this is God bringing good out of evil. Because it's wonderful that Jesus came that God was incarnate that he lived here on earth. In fact, the liturgy for Good Friday says, Happy fault it was a sin, that's always bad, but happiness came out of it. God became man, lived here on earth, taught us and saved us. As the prayer in the older rite of the Mass says, when the priest is putting the wine and a drop of water in the chalice at the offertory, O oh God, who in creating human nature did wonderfully dignify it, that is by giving it grace, and still more wonderfully restore it by dying on the cross to restore the grace, grant that by this mixture of water and wine we may become partakers of his divine nature who became a partaker of our human nature. This very ancient prayer puts our position in a nutshell, how we got into this position and what our future is. It was because Adam, the head of the human race, sinned that we're all affected like this. As St. Paul explains in his letter to the Romans in chapter 5, through one man sin came into the world, and by sin, death. 
And a little later on in the same letter, if by one man's offence death reigned, through one, Jesus Christ, we receive abundance of grace. I think it's lovely the way he puts, not just we receive grace, but abundance of grace. So this briefly is what the church teaches on original sin. Unfortunately, it's often ignored or misunderstood today. And that is very unfortunate. Because if you don't teach original sin, there is so much else you can't teach properly. You can't explain about redemption. There's no sin in the first place. Or baptism. If we're not born without grace, you can't explain about grace. It's like a domino. A whole lot of Catholic teaching goes down. And yet it's very difficult to find original sin properly taught in any RE book. I heard of a teacher the other day who tackled a very high-placed cleric about it when he came to visit the school and said, I'm using that new book, uh, Icons, with my children, but I'm not very happy with it because it doesn't teach original sin. And he replied, Oh, but original sin is so negative. Now that's almost unbelievable. Whether it's negative or positive, it happened. And it affects us all. And it affects what we believe and what we teach about the doctrines of the church. We can't even teach the Immaculate Conception of Our Lady. And this we have explained first about original sin. Because anyone would think we're all conceived immaculate. There's no sin. That was an honour kept especially for our Blessed Lady because she's the Mother of God. You remember the angel when he came to her at the Annunciation tells us she's full of grace. There was no original sin in her. That's why we celebrate her birthday as a feast. Other saints we celebrate the day they die and go to heaven. We don't celebrate the day they were born because they were born without grace, in original sin. But Mary is the one who put it or helped to put it all right. That's why she's depicted crushing the serpent's head. And the church fathers used to like to say that the Ave, A-V-E, exactly turns round Eva, the one who sinned, E-V-A. And Our Lady's obedience and humility cancel out the disobedience and pride of Eve's sin. Now it's very important to teach about original sin. I think the reason some people duck it is they're not happy how it rides with evolution. Pope Pius XII had no such problems. Anyone who reads Humanity Generous will see. He realised evolution might be on the cards. At the time he wrote it, it was more likely than it is now. But there was no moving away from the church's teaching on original sin. And that's how we should teach it. The Catechism in the Catholic Church does. It says very clearly in paragraph 388, Original sin is an essential truth of the faith. The church, which has the mind of Christ, knows very well that we cannot tamper with the revelation of original sin without undermining the mystery of Christ. 
And we don't want to undermine the mystery of Christ. So we must include in our teaching the story of the fall, the original sin and its consequences. I think the problem of evolution was even foreseen by a blessed lady. It was brought to light, of course, in the middle of the 19th century. And through the 19th century, in the beginning of the 20th, we see in Our Lady's apparitions that she is teaching us about her Immaculate Conception, which explains, which insists, in fact, that evolution or not, original sin occurred. Otherwise, the Immaculate Conception is meaningless. In 1830, when Our Lady appeared in the Rue de Bac in Paris and presented us with a miraculous medal, the prayer she wrote, she wrote herself, she designed that medal, was, O Mary conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. Then again, in 1858, when she appeared to little Bernadette at Lourdes, Bernadette asked her her name. She said, I am the Immaculate Conception. No getting away from that. And of course in 1917, when she appeared at Fatima, she told the children to spread the word that her Immaculate Heart must be venerated and respected and the devotion of the first five Saturdays in honour of her Immaculate Heart. And of course in the middle of the century, in 1854, the Pope defined solemnly the teaching we'd always given that Mary was conceived immaculate. So you see, original sin, far from being negative, leads to a great deal of positive, realistic teaching. And it explains a lot about our own behaviour and other people's, which in a way is a comfort. So don't duck original sin. Now I'd like to finish this tape by reciting the second joyful mystery of the Rosary. The Visitation. This is when our Blessed Lady went to visit her cousin Elizabeth. When the angel Gabriel spoke to our Lady at the Annunciation, Part of her message was that her cousin Elizabeth had also conceived a baby and was now in her sixth month. So when the angel departed, leaving our Blessed Lady with Jesus, Mary went with haste to the countryside of Judah, the hill country it's called in the Bible. It was quite a long way from Nazareth. This was a journey of 60 or so miles. But she went with haste because she knew that her cousin would need help. Her cousin was elderly. She was young. She was prepared to help her. And also, I think, because now she had Christ with her and she was taking Christ to her cousin's house. We should always bring our Lord to the people we love. We can't bring them anything better. So Mary travelled to Judah. And when she entered the house, she saluted Elizabeth. She must have called out a greeting, but we're not told exactly what it was. When Elizabeth heard the sound of her voice, the child in her womb, who was John the Baptist, 
leapt for joy. Now the church teaches us at that moment, in honour of the visit from Our Lady with Our Lord, with her, he was cleansed from original sin. Grace was given to him. So that he's the other one whose birthday we keep. Our Lady's and John the Baptist's, and of course Jesus' birthday. But Elizabeth hurried down to greet her cousin. And she was filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is how she greeted her. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. She completed the first half of the Hail Mary. Those are the words we say to Our Lady every time we say the Hail Mary. The church added the name of Jesus. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And why should the mother of my Lord come to me? See, the Holy Spirit had told her this baby was God. Jews very rarely use the name God. They spoke about him as my Lord. And Mary responded with the beautiful prayer, the Magnificat, which the church still uses a great deal. And she said, My soul does magnify the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, because he has regarded the humility of his handmaiden. Our Lady had every wonderful virtue, but she was wise enough to know that it was her humility that had led God to choose her to be his mother. She goes on to say that all generations will call her blessed. Which is true. All generations, every generation since then, Catholics have called her blessed, the blessed virgin. And she takes all the credit away from herself in her humility and says, He that is mighty, he has done great things to me and holy is his name. And she goes on to praise God. It's a beautiful prayer. It's worth looking in the first chapter of St. Luke and reading it. And when she finished, she and Elizabeth went into the house. And the Queen of Heaven, the Great Mother of God, got busy looking after her cousin and helping with the chores so that she could rest. And she stayed three months with her, probably until the baby was born. And then she went back to her own home in Nazareth. Now while we say the Our Father, ten Hail Marys and glory be, that's the story we think of today. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. 
Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. O my Jesus, forgive us our sins, and save us from the fires of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of thy mercy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much for listening to this tape. The next one is going to be about the great mystery of the Blessed Trinity. God bless you.